My name is Georgina Smith. I'm Head of Distribution and Client Services at Innate Investment Platform and your host for this episode. Today we go back to May when I sat down with UK Financial Services Specialist Phil Billingham. We explored the route you need to follow to get to where you want to be as a financial planner in today's climate, especially with the looming implementation of RDR, a topic we explored in our previous two episodes. Phil and I spoke about some of the business models that financial advisors can follow and how you can make them work for you. We also talked about the relative profit you could be expected to earn from each of these different business models and the type of mindset you need to have to operate within them. Let's take a listen. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Phil Billingham, a well-known veteran in our industry. <laughs> uh, and he's uh, very well known both here and in the UK. Um, Phil joined the industry in 1982 um, and is a past director of the Institute of Financial Planning and the Society of Financial Advisors and a past member of the Financial Planning Services Board and Regulatory Advisory Panel. A specialist in helping advisors cope with regulatory change, he has worked with advisors, planners and regulators in the UK, Europe, USA, Canada, South Africa and Australia. That's some list. Phil is an associate of the Chartered Institute, uh, Chartered Insurance Institute, a fellow uh, of the uh, Personal Finance Society, a certified financial planner, a chartered wealth manager and a chartered financial planner. Professional Advisor magazine has listed him amongst the top 50 influential advisors. Together with his wife, Shannon, he is an active planner and director of perceptive planning. And this firm has been awarded chartered financial planning status, as well as being nominated as a top 100 firm by New Model Advisor magazine, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, and on it goes. International Advisor has also listed him as one of the top 100 global influencers in financial services. And even that biography doesn't really do justice to all the great work that Phil has done, because within the last month, he and Shannon... Um, his wife and fellow financial planner drove a large van full of emergency supplies, mainly donated by fellow financial planners and your clients, um, to Poland to help the Ukrainian uh, refugees. And if you're interested in that and seeing corporate and social responsibility in a small firm in action, uh, we can certainly touch on that mm -hmm. later. So welcome to the hot seat, Phil. That's some introduction, isn't it? <laughs> I think the summary is Phil's old. <laughs> um, well, you know, perhaps on that note, perhaps you can talk us through your journey in this industry, you know, where you started and how you got to where you are. Yeah. I guess like, like most people at the time, 82, uh, <clears throat> I joined by accident. Um, I was 21 years old in Birmingham. I'd managed to be... Um, um, thrown off my my degree course. Um, I've gone up in the world. My, the, originally, I was thrown out to a, a polytechnic, and now it's become a university. So I've now <laughs> been thrown out to a, a university. Um, so there, there was nothing there for me. I was um, there was a the middle of a recession, so it was selling double glazing or selling insurance, and, and, and insurance was more honest. Um, so I, I I joined a direct sales commission only. I um, fit my my. Uh, induction was uh, here's a rate book. Here's Birmingham. Come back when you sold something. Um, that that's not the summary. That was the induction, um, and the numbers were were endless. It was based on very much uh, Project 100. Sell to your friends and family. Well, only six people in the Midlands, and so that didn't take me very far. Um, um, and cold calling. 
um, and it was it it was hard. The turnover was was brutal, and I think within two weeks, the nine out of ten of us were, that started had gone. Uh, I think I was just too stubborn to to, to leave. Um, so it went from there. So it was the the the, the heart of direct sales, if you like, the the really uh, red in tooth and claw. Um, and from there, you moved through various different models, didn't you? I mean, you briefly touched there on the sales yeah. model. We'll come back to that in a mm. moment. What happened after that? Um, I think with hindsight, in the early 80s, 82, 83, companies were still trying to run a 70s direct sales model of, of cold calling. And it was run by people who'd been successful at cold calling and direct sales. And by the early 80s, it, it, it wasn't working. Um, um, I might say that because I was rubbish at it, but it, it just wasn't working. Um, and one of the reasons it wasn't working is, is there was really very little incentive or plan or structure in most firms to look after the orphan clients where somebody sold, you know, somebody sold half a dozen policies and then failed and gone off and done something else. But the policies themselves might have been really quite good, quite sound. Um, life insurance savings, you know, that, that's, a, that's good stuff. So I think like a lot of people at the time, uh, men my age, um, we survived by, by reinventing the system in a while, changing the system. Um, our specialism was was working with with orphan clients and people who moved. The firm I happened to join I happened to specialise in working with armed forces. And I came. I was uh, I'm ex Royal Navy, and um, that meant that a lot of my clients were SAS or uh, bomb disposal. Um, and there was a lot of people moving to and from Germany and wherever, changing. And we got quite good, my friend and I, working with with those clients. And I think then there was a lot of what is now or what became the independent sector in the UK came out of that uh, environment where a, a lot of people survived and then went, there's got to be another way of doing this. There's a better way of doing this. This is not great. Um, and I think that's where the, a lot of the independent brokers became the IFA sector. That, that's where that came from. It's still sales, still commission, but, but trying to sell the right, products um, to the right people, have more of a relationship, have a client base. And, and that's just a happier place to be. It's better for the consumer. It's certainly better for the for the advisor. Uh, not so good for the companies. And um, there was a great deal of attrition over that period then with companies who um, just wanted to sell product. They were just there. You know, one company I was with, um, the companies, the, the products were called Amethyst and Ruby and, and all this sort of nonsense. And you just know that's a sales culture. That's nothing mm. to do with the client at mm. all. That's pure sales. And, mm. and that had to go. And mm. it's gone. And then how did you then move from advisory into financial planning and, and where you are now? Yeah, I'm doing in between, mostly consultancy. But um, through the, the, some of the stuff you talked about, I knew the... Um, the people involved in the Institute of Financial Planning, and I've got the other qualifications along the way. And they kept saying, you should do your CFP, you should do your CFP. Um, so eventually in 2006, I did, Chan and I did a crash course, four days, uh, down in Bristol. 
And it was transformative. It really was. Halfway through the second day, it really dawned on me that this was just a different world. And I remember saying, and I still believe it, that if everybody did business this way, we'd never get any complaints. It's just the way it should be. And it was a light bulb moment. It literally was a light bulb moment. It was extraordinarily tiring. Um, so I took a flat and, and uh, I couldn't work Excel. So Sharon's trying to teach me how to use Excel and, <laughs> and, and do her own plan. So we're doing a plan for over four days. Um, and it was a bit of a brutal course. I think the, the, the uh, 95% failed the first time. Um, um, so, you know, of course, Shannon's one amongst the 5% that passed the first time. I wasn't. Um, <laughs> but, boy, I probably learned as much or more in those four days than I, than I have in years elsewhere. So it was really, yeah, this, this, is, this is the way to do it. Uh, at that stage, Shannon and I were in uh, consultancy together. Um, when I first met her, she was um, head of uh, investment. Uh, she uh, investment director at BDO I used to run about a quarter of half a billion pounds of other people's money. Mm. Um, and in 2009, after working through that, um, Chan said, decided she wanted to go back into financial planning, uh, financial advice she loves clients. Um, so we sold the uh, um, the consultancy practice to a large one, and I joined them as head of business consulting. And I took then my job was to take their clients. They had about 600 IFA firms they looked after. My job was to take those client firms through the RDR, so build a program to take them through through RDR. Um, so that's what I did, and then came back and joined the financial planning practice once once we got through that process in 2013. So it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? And, and I've known you fun. for several years now and uh, know of your profile in the industry. And, and what you've described there briefly is, is if you like, three, three different models, really, that you've experienced. One mm. being the sales model to yeah. start with. Then there's, if you like, the, the advice model. And then we're talking really about now we're in the planning model. Yeah. I want to take you back to that sales model. I mean, those days, those days in the 80s. Um, how long did you last there? And, and what, did it, what did it feel like to be in that world? Um, how long was I in direct sales? I was in direct sales about 10, 12 years, I think. Something like that, different companies. Mm. Um, never the top performer, but did enough. The odd world you know, kept, kept me in beer. Um, and, um, yeah, um, so I was in that environment for, for a while, uh, partially, um, did find training in that period. I was, I was, um, taken on as a trainer, uh, on a six month contract, discovered I love training as almost as much as I love selling. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't think we always like to admit it, but those of us come through there, we selling, selling's fun. Mm. Um, I always used to say selling is, is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, that, that it, it, it is fun. It's intellectually challenging, but um, yeah, life, life moves on. Yeah, I get um, And how many clients were you typically looking after or even, you might not even call it looking after. But. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, that's the heart of it is that we did, a lot of us did and did try to, um, but the number we were looking after compared to the number of sales we made weren't 
connected. Mm. So, uh, and there was no real focus on re client retention within the companies. And in fact, the bank assurer model in the UK that everybody was very frightened about. I remember the first time I went to the States and talked to people there in 1985, uh, they were quite frightened of the bank assurer model. Um, and, and it completely failed in the UK. And one of the reasons it failed, to, one reason was they had a deliberate policy of moving the advisor between branches to break up that relationship because they viewed the advice process or the sales process as obtaining clients for the bank and it was nothing to do with, with the salesman. And I know personally some very good, very good financial planners in the UK. Uh, hi, Darren. Uh, who, um, who who came out to that model and just couldn't cope with that and went and set up on their own. And guess what? Their clients found them. Yeah. Uh, or the, the better clients found them because it is it is about relationship. It is about the person. And I think a fundamental misunderstanding of the banks and the big companies is they believe that the money is the client. They absolutely get that. And they don't really get that the person is the client. Mm. And if the money could come in and be reviewed on its own without bringing these, these people in with them mm. that have emotions and are complicated, that would suit them down to the ground. Mm. I think it was you that said to me, I think you were the first person that said to me, we're in the business of people, not the business of money. And that's absolutely. really stuck with me because I think you're absolutely spot on there. Um, so, so, so the idea of, uh, obviously, in the UK of, of banks kind of making the most of this model, has that? Is that still happening? Or, and is this direct sales model still in existence very much mm. in the UK? Insurance companies keep wanting their direct sales back. They're reading ABI um, responses to consultation papers is always an exercise in amusement. Uh, I think they want to go back to brown suits and kipper ties and kajagoogoo <laughs> as well. Uh, I'm sorry, the 80s is not coming back, uh, and, and, and neither should it. Um, I think in financial services, direct sales is is a broken model, and it's un, it's un, unprofitable in the longer term. Um, the best thing that happened with that model is when they stopped paying senior people on the number of products sold, because uh, people will always find a way of doing what they're paid to do. Mm. Um, and uh, breaking breaking that relationship was was really really quite important mm. um the mindset is still there with, with some companies i've been told by big firms um that um the the role of the advisor is to bring them clients mm. which is um both arrogant and stupid uh, but that's big companies for you um so it doesn't it doesn't it just doesn't work i mean it's not that it's in somebody's religion it just physically doesn't work mm. And the truth is, I think if anybody thinks it is going to work for them, then they're going to be competing with Pick and Pay and Tesco's and Amazon and Take A Lot because that's how people buy commodities now mm, mm. Um, and, and deal with simplicity. And frankly, I'd love that. I would love that if people could go to the, the checkout at, at, um, at, at Tesco's and swipe a card and I want to say, oh, yeah, you haven't topped up your ISA this month. Would you like mm. to do so? I think, oh, I'm feeling a bit flush. Yeah, I'll put a couple hundred pounds in. 
I think that would be fabulous. Mm. Um, a friend of mine once said that, that Tesco's knew his wife was pregnant before he did and, <laughs> and, and what she was buying. And then on the reward card, and nine months later, they were sending offers for uh, um, um, you know, uh, baby stuff. You know, um, that's, you know, the algorithm's there capturing the data. For some reason, Tesco sent me stuff about cheese and wine, so they've got me wrong. <laughs> I don't think they have. Obviously. <laughs> Um, but, you know, you can't compete with that. You just can't compete with that. And I think you can end up distributing products for two basis points, mm. not, not 100 or 1,000. Yeah, it, it's a different world. So if people want to go direct sales, that's your competition. Good luck with that. Mm. It's mm. not going to happen. Especially when you think of the, the ecosystem that supports those kind of businesses, the loyalty cards, the benefits, the, you know, the yeah. insights and all of that. I, I, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And the economics of it, you know, those jobs don't have to be done in the city of London mm. Mm. at £100 an hour. You know, they can be done in Bangalore mm. a lot less than that. Mm. So you, you touched on it earlier uh, about moving into more of an independent space mm. and you you talked very much about you know uh, I want to be able to form a relationship with the clients and, and give ongoing advice um how did that play out in your day-to-day life um my main involvement in that space was as a consultant support to them rather than doing it myself mm. um if I'm completely truthful I set up a um, um a compliance consultancy um that became other things um so we and we ended up specializing looking after the financial advice arm of um uh accountancy practices so i saw a lot of that higher end stuff particularly around the tax place um particularly i was involved in then uk regulation in one way or another from from a day 29th of, of april 1988 and it's really sad that i know that um um, now I'm about my 11th or 12th UK regulator, I've taken to writing them in in pencil on, on things. So they move on, but um, it was how to how to make the regulation work was really what became my my my, my specialism. Um, that's partly driven by how your regulation evolved. Um, your regulation evolved from from very much a buyer beware um, environment. Um, the which state I, system, which I guess you're talking about the sales environment, sales that, environment, that kind of buyer beware, yeah, yeah. And, 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 um, yeah, if you're going to spend money on it, then then that's your choice. Mm. Um, and you've got to learn, you know, trust the brand and whatever. And in the states, you can sue people. Um, the regulators saw the flaws in that, and I accept the flaws and agree with them, but the way they chose to deal with it was through. Disclosure, I guess they call it education, and it that's grown. And uh, I remember the first buyer's guide in the UK; it was two pages, um, and there was a half a chance that clients might read that. They didn't read the two pages, and uh, I think we've got to remind ourselves that we all lie four or five times a day, and for most of us, those four or five times was when we ticked the box to say that we've read and understood the terms and conditions. Mm. Has anybody ever read and understood Apple's terms and conditions? I certainly haven't. It's ridiculous. Mm. And, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, life's too short. Two, it's in very small font, and I'm getting very old. Uh, but three, we know it, we can't change it. We can't go to Apple and say, oh, could you change subparagraph four? Mm. That's not going to happen. So we're powerless. So disclosure doesn't empower anybody. It, it's just a cop-out. 
I think when I was doing a lot of compliance work and file checking work, I read thousands upon thousands of files. Um, it was quite clear that there's a category of, of work done by some advisors that I would, uh, compliance people is called compliant but crap. <laughs> so I'll just stop you there because we use crap all the time in the UK. I think we can call it cuck here, you know, it, just, just in case. <laughs> it's still sticky, horrible brown stuff. <laughs> and it's compliant. So you have to tick a box to say the file was compliant. But if somebody had given that advice to your brother or your sister, you'd go around and kneecap them. Mm. You know, mm. it, it just became an excuse. And, and I always wince when an advisor would ask me, um, am I allowed to do that? Because mm. I always felt if you're asking that question, the line was is now behind you. Mm. You know, so dis disclosure and, and, and advisors ended up working in many ways, working to the compliance practice. It's like playing the ref in rugby. Yeah. yeah. Well, once you do the first cookie put in and the ref doesn't call it, every put in yeah. after that is cookie. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's 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 the direct equivalent to that and. I'm not saying that, that that's a world of bad advice. The, the IFA sector in the UK, mainly small practices, without question on every metric ever measured, was producing better advice than, than any of the other, the other models. And flaws, it's like saying, you know, Winston Churchill, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> um, so it's very easy to focus on those flaws, but the advice coming out of that on the main was far ahead of anything else that was around mm. and how does the advisor get paid in that model what's the, what are the typical mm. payment structure structures and then you know compared with the sales model as well that we just spoke about yeah up until 2012 rdr excuse me um that was still commission model mm. uh post january 2013 it's been a fee model um, it is quite interesting how much some of the fee models look like commissions um, in terms of percentages. So that's still a, a work in progress, I think. Mm. Um, but the most important thing about it is it's it's much more clearly the client's money. It's much more of a bottom-up model rather than a top-down. You get paid what you agree with the client from the bottom-up rather than what commission a provider chooses to pay. So even if the two amounts are the same, it's still fundamentally different. Mm. Um, and most of those ad advisors have now pretty much 90% uh, client retention models, not uh, new business models. Mm. And I think that's been a massive, in some ways, been a massive improvement for the consumer. The big problem in the UK it's caused is, is there is a huge shortage of advisors and it's very difficult for middle affluent consumers to get good advice that they're, they're almost driven to the banks and they're never going to get good advice there mm, mm. and um just thinking about that sort of you know getting paid for retention and you see a mm. a, a bit rate if you like over the aum of, mm. of a client i mean a lot of that also is is uh driving the asset of the advisor the the their own personal asset that they mm. can hopefully sell mm. in succession planning. Mm. Would you agree with that? That's the way the numbers are. Mm. Um, it's, it's caused some concerns. Um, and the more 
I guess I'm speaking from personal here, the more focused you are on planning, the more focused a firm is on not using products and active funds, using evidence-based, um, and the more comfortable they get clients with that model, the that is cutting down the universe of people who can buy you. Um, so that's quite an interesting dynamic as a business person. Mm. Uh, Why do you say that? Because, if, yeah, if you take up you know, the people with the, with the money to spend, you know, come through venture capital or fund managers or product providers, and the economic rationale for the sale is to, it's not quite churn, but that, that by, you know, uh, it so, only so- makes sense if somebody is then moved from having take our little practice, you know, taking 10 million pound out of Vanguard and putting it into ABC active fund at, and it could be twice the price mm. and consumers may accept that mm. uh, it's a brand and, and um, people buy brands, but I'm not convinced that's the best outcome. Mm. So you're looking as a business person, you would be looking to be bought, by somebody who has the same ethos and the same values and the same beliefs because you won't you, you can't be looked after in that and i'm already having conversations with clients but i'm talking about their next 10 or 15 years knowing i'm not going on that journey with them mm, mm. that within the practice there are people who can do that but it won't be me mm. um so that's quite challenging yeah and succession planning i think is such a hot topic and it doesn't matter it certainly is here i've seen Lots of chat in the UK as well about it. And I think you, you're quite right. What you're alluding to there is, you know, a venture capitalist or, or, or a, a bigger company comes into wanting to put you in their solutions because, of course, it increases the PA, PE rather for when they eventually move you on, perhaps. Um, and, and then what's the alternative to that, though, mm. Phil? I think there are a few out there. Um, my friend Chris Budd is very involved in... Um, uh, the eternal company staff where, where the, basically it's an employee trust buyout and that, that's a number of big, very good firms, Paradigm Norton, I guess, are the biggest in the UK going down that route. Internal succession, I mean, Shannon and Alan are both uh, 10, 11, 12 years younger than me. Um, uh, so that, that makes a difference and we, we need to, to look at that, uh, bringing people through. Um, we, we do need to, to be bringing, bringing people through, um, you know, it'd be great to have a chartered financial planner in their forties in our business. That would, mm. that would be that would be fine because that gives us another fifteen or twenty years. So um, that that's important. I think mergers and um, can happen, and it doesn't have to dilute the quality. Um, we've seen that in in in, in vets and, and, and dentists. Um, I moved to a small village in Pusey, and there were five vets. So I moved to the village all independent. When I left the village seven years later, there were still five vets, but under two brands. Um, but the quality coming out of there was still brilliant quality. Mm, it mm. was just a different different world. So I think we can do that, but we have to be careful who we partnership with, partner with. And the, the, there is a, um, a synergy there. Uh, I think the challenge is, is an ego one. A lot of the people that, they're looking a bit like me and my sort of agent and it's been a, a journey to get there and the only way to get to doing what they want to do 
and and to be able to deliver their beliefs and their values is to do it yourself. Mm. And you, you, there's been a rejection of the corporate environment. Mm. Um, and running a financial planning business can can be hard, but it can be a big warm bath because everybody loves you. Your staff love you, your clients love you, providers want to spend money. You know, it's it, it, it's you get you get a lot of affirmation in that respect so i think when you, you're trying to merge those businesses everybody has to give up a bit of sovereignty and mm. that can be that can be a bit tough mm. um but it's important that that happens that transition has to happen we're in the middle of a process or we'll start of a process we're not at the end of a process mm. and i think it's so interesting what you say because what tends to happen is the, the financial advisor financial planner is the brand themselves and you said earlier yeah. you hold the relationships yeah. you know it's, it's not the not the the bank or whoever yeah. it's it's you guys that hold the relationships and when you're yeah. the brand it becomes actually detrimental to any kind of succession plan because it becomes quite difficult yeah. um i, I want to talk explore this a, a, this advice model you yeah. know a little bit more if i may um and and really sort of think about you know we talked about how an advisor gets paid. What are the what are the normal profit margins you'd see in mm. this kind of model? The uh, and let's just define what it is because we're going to talk about a third model, which is a financial planning model. So we talk mm. about the sales model. We talk mm. we want to talk about this advice model, and um, and and we've mentioned it's doing doing as much as you need to to mm. get through the compliance, if you like. And, and that for, might be unfair. For, for some. Yeah. For some. Um, so, yeah, I think I, th I think for some that, that that's not fair. Uh, IFA businesses were reasonably profitable and then RDR made them very profitable. Um, the one thing, an unintended consequence, I'm sure, of RDR is it forced firms to look very hard at where their income was coming from and challenged a lot of advisors who've never had to go to clients and say, um, it's because I'm worth it. Mm. You, you need, to, need to pay me. And an awful lot of advisors, and I've been there in those conversations, found that their valid relationships, clients they loved to bits, were unprofitable relationships. Mm. And that was very challenging for them. Um, and, and, and that led to an increase in fees and, and, and simplification processes and whatever. And the shorthand is that those clients became, uh, those firms became more profitable. And um, we saw that with, um, um, in 2014, 15, I, I did a work with uh, the Institute of Financial Planning in the UK doing an analysis of um, credit firms, looking at, at their numbers and metrics and who they were using and, and product productivity and, and, and profitability. And you, you, you're looking at uh, uh, individual advisors um, very roughly making, uh, looking at uh, turning over about £180,000 per annum per advisor and probably keeping about 40% of that mm. to themselves. Um, and that's, with other stuff on top, that, that, that's a reasonably well-paid job for a lot of people and what would be the total reason. client assets there? Uh, total client assets would would be something like um, twelve to fifteen million, because mm. uh, a lot of that model is about the charging three percent for each yeah. bit on top and whatever. So, so probably about sixty seventy percent of that model would be underlying income, mm. um, which was a big jump 
big jump that, but was that was already happening pre-RDR, but RDR just pushed that. It, it's all about client retention. Um, so quite profitable. Um, um, I think in lots of those businesses, 80% of the profit probably came from 20 clients, not 20%. That's always the case. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and that sort of analysis. But RDR forced firms to, for the first time, to take a consultancy look at themselves and a business look at themselves. Because most IFAs are in business by accident. Mm. Yeah, they got good at getting clients. They couldn't do with it themselves. So they had to recruit staff. And, and, and suddenly there's offices and suddenly they're running a business with 15, 20 people in it, turning over a million pounds. And they go, how did this happen? Mm, how do I get here? How did I get here? I know. Yeah, I, I, I do see that quite a lot. What would the typical client journey be like in this sort of model? What, what does that look and feel like? I think the front part of that is pretty good for clients um, because clients are – people become clients at a point of stress in their lives. Mm. Um, and um, the initial – client process deals with that stress i think reasonably well mm-hmm. um where the money is part of the stress they've inherited money they've divorced they're retiring they've sold a business mm. those, those sort of trigger points and I, I think the advice model the ifa model in particular deals with that uh pretty pretty well uh, lots of paperwork but, but but pretty well um the the model used to be less good at looking after those people and i came people to do that um it's got better um so i think with some firms clients could feel that they only want to talk to me when i think i've got money mm. um and i've seen quite a few ongoing processes that are about reviewing the performance of the portfolio rather than who the client is and you can see that on websites very often. Mm. You go on website, what do we do? Uh, pensions, mortgages, mm. yeah. <laughs> ISAs. It's technical. It's about it's about that. Um, in fact, there was an exercise done a number of years ago, and it measured, and it was with Bank Assure staff, but they measured how long it took from the beginning of a conversation to the first time the, the advisor used any technical language or, or to discussed a product or, or tax in any way. Um, any guesses? Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, within the first 10 minutes, I would have thought. Mm. I wish it was that long. Oh. 80, 82 seconds. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Okay. I'm seriously not kidding. And what's scary is I've gone into the larger sales organizations, given that number, and then done some training, and we struggle to get some of them over two minutes. Really? Really struggle because that's what they're trained to do. That's what they know. That's where they think they're adding the value. You've come to see me about the money. Yes. Yeah. So it's not that they're stupid or lazy. It's that that's what they're dealing with. Yeah. That's what they're good at. Um, and it's really hard. Yeah. yeah, it's it's the business of money, not the business of people. Yeah, exactly. It is, is, is what it can feel like. And I've been a client in that model. And, and yes, I, do, I did end up talking about portfolios, fund picking, tax efficiency, um, all of those sort of technical subjects, which at the time felt okay, actually, yeah. because... I guess I didn't know any better. It's a professional environment. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it fulfilled a need yeah. that I had. But I think your philosophy very much is that it can be better than that. Mm. And so perhaps that's a nice segue into planning. Yes. What, does that, what does that look like? The buzzword is holistic. 
So let's let's put that buzzword to one side because I don't think that helps us. Um, but it is looking at the person, um, and it's not an accident that some planners, and I'm not one of them, but some planners have moved and gone into more life coaching and life planning, and there's a lot of disparaging comments about that, but I don't think it is disparaging. I think people are attracted to that area, and the money be... I think I, I think people are interesting and money's boring inherently. Mm, yeah. And I think an awful lot of what is done now quite well in the advice model can be done by people elsewhere, can be done remotely, and I think we've all learned what can be done remotely over the last two years. It can be done by algorithm to a very large degree. Um, so I, th I think there is a, an inherent built-in redundancy to a lot of the value of the advice model if we're not if they're not careful financial planning people are always going to do weird and interesting things it's great um i think i'm talking to some of my clients um you know in six or 12 months time all i can guarantee will be the same as the date of birth everything else could have changed um i get to work with people who are not dumb not stupid done interesting things have wikipedia pages you write books who um I've, as a financial planner I've, I've got clients who are authorized to give advice and work in the city and, 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 and manage, know much more about money than me, much mm. more about money mm. than I, I do. Um, I compete with that space. They turn up with portfolios and spreadsheets and, and sharps ratios and yields. And I go, okay, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that we're we're going to do this other stuff. Yeah. What if I kid you off? Can look after this no right well let's start with that as a process yeah let's let's do let's do that stuff this stuff doesn't matter mm. it really doesn't an extra one percent performance is irrelevant you might think it's important but it's really not mm. it's it's the other stuff that really 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 matters um and what is that other stuff it's the phone call on a monday morning my mate down the golf club's got this clever idea no <laughs> but it's only fifty thousand. no <laughs> But no, <laughs> um, it's it's wealthy. All the wealth happens to be in the husband's name, but it really is family's wealth, family wealth, and and the wife has no idea where the stuff is. Mm. And we have it the other way as well. We've got and you know they, they thought they were worth about one and a half million when we when we met them. They can be great surprise when we found out they were three point. Four, um, and we got both of them to retire within a year, 18 months, took mm. a little while. Um, but we've had to simplify um, because if anything had happened to her, he didn't even know his passwords. Mm. Not the first clip, not the first clip. I think that might be my husband, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's looking at that stuff. It's, it's a bit, you know, it, it's the other stuff. You know, a, a lot of people learned that you know what, um, you could die tomorrow. Um, we all lost people during the pandemic. Um, you know, I, was, uh, I managed to do my time in ICU and, <laughs> and all the rest of it myself. Uh, I've got Scott to prove it. Um, it. This stuff can happen. Um, nobody's going to remember in the mess that, that left behind, there was an extra 1% performance. But the fact that there's a paperwork fire drill, that, that the powers of attorney are in place, the wills are in place, they're up to date. Um, we know where the, all the bank, that stuff is much more important under those points of stress. Um, it's 
I always say I can do financial planning for most people for the price of a beer. It's it, on the back of a beer mat. It's spend less, uh, save more, uh, uh, insure the breadwinner, and make a will. Well, if you do that stuff, you'll never be poor. Mm. Mm. Then when it comes to you've got you, you suddenly got three jobs on two continents and you're only second family and you've got a business and life's a bit complicated. Right now, let's talk because there's stuff there I can help you with. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and I think when I listen to you and, and perhaps if I was to put a client hat on, it's the difference between knowing how much money I've got and knowing how what my portfolio is invested in and things like that between actually wanting to go and and be able to sleep at night you know how, have I got enough you know am mm. I am I going to be okay yeah uh, would that be a fair assumption that's that's fair for a lot of people and uh, I think there are three categories there's people who haven't got enough but need to get more secure more resilient and we work with people with that there's people who've got enough if they do things carefully if if they think it through if they carry on what they're doing if they don't make mistakes and then there's a category of people who've got more than enough, but how now do we do we work with that? And Shannon in particular is a specialist of working with intergenerational. And in, we've got more than a few clients now where Shannon is working on the, with a third generation of the same family. Mm. Um, and there's a little saying in the office that you know, with every gift comes a planner. <laughs> so money's given. Um, and given with a warm hand, not a cold hand, given during life when mm. you can see the benefit. Uh, but it's 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 balancing that. Have I got enough to give? Yes, you have, and we can work it out. We can put continuities, and we can, we we build. Look, sometimes we build what we call engines. And we put it over here, and that's on one platform, and that's like a diesel engine. It's just going to tick away, and that's going to make sure you never run out of money. Mm. But there's this money left over, and we and we often put it on a different platform, and we treat it as a different client, mm. and then that's to do stuff with, mm. uh, and that can be quite interesting for people um so yeah sleeping at night but sleeping at night is it uh, enough money am i going to leave my family okay um if anything happens to me can they cope with all of this those are the worries so where money is is part of the problem not necessarily part of the solution mm. but at that understanding of, of financial resilience and then understanding moving around the financial um independence i think those are two important things um and, and we need to make sure that people are getting to those things resilience first of all yeah um if you're not financially resilient you'll never be financially independent mm. um, and then moving on beyond that um people people like financial planning clients it's it's odd sometimes to talk about it in commercial terms because Financial plans are not, um, yeah. Barry Horner would say, if you, if you meet a poor financial plan, it means they're a poor financial plan. <laughs> and, I, and I sort of get that. Um, but financial planners find people, it, people come to us with X amount, and it's extremely common. In fact, the majority of people, once they've experienced that process, say, well, I've got this other amount, I've got this, or there's somebody else in the family. So what we learned going to RDR when we did the number crunching, going back to some of your, your metrics, is that uh, on average, at that time, financial advisors got paid 30-odd basis points on about 40% of the client's disposable uh, or investable wealth. On average, financial planners get paid about 85 basis points on about 95% of 
of the client's investable wealth. And that that's the big game changer. Yeah. So we're going from 150, 180,000 um, turnover financial advisor, and that's still pretty good. Um, financial planning firms, it, it's not uncommon to see that number as 300, 400,000. Yeah. Uh, and people say, oh, that's because you've got wealthier clients. Sort of, but actually it's, those clients are wealthy as well. You just don't look after it. Mm. These guys are wealthy, and, and then you're dealing with the next generation. Um, we put a lot of effort into that. In the States, the studies are that 85 90% of planet advisors, um, uh, when, when their client dies, the, the assets move mm. um, for lots of reasons. Um, for a lot of reasons, we put a lot of work into the next generation. Um, we take uh, Paul Etheridge's rules about we provide financial planning for free to our clients, mm. our children. Mm. And um, we got to the point where 85% of clients' children who could be clients are clients. Mm. That's a very good, very good retention rate. Uh, in their own right. Now, mm. that creates some conflicts because mm. parents give them money and say, well, I want my daughter to do this with it. So, well, <laughs> we're not talking to you. It's not your money. No, I gave it to you. It's my money. No, not your money and we'll then do things within the office we have shadows mm. um and we'll separate we'll separate them out mm. the shadows so the shadows yeah, so there's a uh, a degree i mean everybody can see all the clients and all the rest of it but we just try to psychologically say this is yours you've given your money over here that's now theirs yeah and then we look after that and then they learn that the children learn to trust us. They come to us with stuff that they wouldn't go to their parents. Yeah, so it's it takes a while. Chan's great at it. Chan's really good at it. Uh, it takes a while. And it sounds like when I listen to you, it's a very different client journey, a very different client conversation. I mean, for example, you know, we spoke about tax efficiency conversations, portfolio uh, fund picking mm-hmm. conversations. How much, if any, of your conversations with your clients revolves around product and in investment choices versus mm. you know lifestyle if you like it does depend on the client a little bit we have got some people who are a bit geeky and like that um we find if they're taking too much interest in picking the funds and whatever then then it's usually easier just to carve out a little bit of portfolio for them and they they run it and we don't charge them for it um but we'll host it and, and, and be the advice um and they just need to report capital gains and losses to us so we can do the, the rest of the, cap, the stuff. Um, we, we do, but we, we do that work. It, it, it's, it's their entry stakes, their hygiene factors. We mm. do the work. We do the fund picking. We do the fund analysis. We have the spreadsheets. We work on tax efficiency. We're obsessive about capital gains tax. We have the right fund and the right wrapper. That's, a, that's an income generated fund. It should be in the ISTA, you know, because over there we can do CGT. We do that stuff because we're geeks. You know, we, we've got, um, we're a small practice. You know, I've, I've got two charter titles. Shannon, I have two charter titles very shortly. She's IMC. We've got another IMC. Uh, 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 as, as a shadow, we we and and every one bar one of the team is doing qualifications, and mm. um, even on the kind of advice. Um, that that's stuff we do, but we don't have to show our working all the time. Yeah. Um, we behind the scenes, some clients love it. Um, and I 
I tend to have that conversation with Shannon because she's much better at it. I'm not the investment person. Our clients learn very quickly, but I'll do all this stuff. And then you Shannon around because I want to talk about investments. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you see, then it's not all hinging on you. We talked no. earlier about, you know, a succession plan. And, and the succession plan is, you know, in, in my experience, works best um, when, when the brand isn't all hinged on one person. And I think there's a misapprehension there sometimes, and I agree with you. The firm is, is Shannon's. Uh, Shannon's the majority shareholder. There's three, three directors, two of which are women in there, mm. and there's not yet in her 50s. And I know she's watching. Um, <laughs> but it will be... <laughs> Yeah, two women in the fifties who own the majority of the shares, shares of the company. So, so whilst people sort of know who I am for other things, I think the the succession is from from them. They're not part of my succession planning in any any way. I think it's much more about um, playing to strengths, and you haven't got to be everything. Mm. And, and I think within a practice where we're all about client retention, if we go if we go a month or two without taking on a client, nobody notices, really. Mm. Uh, if we lose a client, we lose very, 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 very few clients. Mm. Losing a client is endless angst. Mm. Whether And most of the clients have left us have left us because we've explained to them they have to go. Mm. Um, but we, we, we reject is the wrong word. Um, there used to be an ad in the UK, um, John West. It's the fish John West reject that make John West the best. Yeah. That's the strap line. Yeah. And, and, and I think not taking on clients just because you can, um, it's taking on clients who, you, who, who it, there's an added value and, and, and a meeting of minds is, is why clients then stay. Mm. Um, for a target, I, I, I ran some workshops. And I had one guy who ran an old-fashioned advisory practice in Glasgow. And the first part of this workshop was on transition. And he was like a rabbit in the headlights. He was, the stuff I was throwing in the first day, I thought, he's not coming back. So it was a three-month program. But he came back. And and he got involved in all the, you know, uh, the, the dodgy schemes, all the clever stuff. It was, yeah. Um, and he was undercharging ongoing, so he had to go out and find new clients. And it just wasn't right. And I remember getting a phone call from him. Because I'd explain to the group, if you've never turned away a client, a potential client, you don't have a client proposition. Mm, yeah. And I remember, and he, he, he's sort of trying to get his head around that. So I had a phone call about seven o'clock on Friday night, because everybody's got my mobile. I've had the same number for 30 years. Um, and it was, yeah, on the phone, Phil, I've just turned away a client who was going to pay me £2,000 in a Glaswegian accent. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So how do you feel about that? It's great. It's the best thing I've done. Thank you for that. That's the best. Yeah, I just feel fat. And it's seven o'clock and I just have to tell you. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> and um, yeah, they they tripled their profits in 18 months after that. And partner, so I was at a conference with his partner a few months later. I didn't have to buy many beers that um, <laughs> But it's hard. Change, change is hard. Yeah, the ch- change it is. Change is hard. And, and when I think about, you know, a lot of the, you talked about sort of some of the, uh, you know, some of the practices out there which, where you've got an advisor and you've got an advisor assistant to deliver the sort of experience you're talking about, the planning experience, what, what is the support network that's needed? What, what, what do you need in place? Is it enough to have an assistant just working alongside you? I think the support structure originally grew as um, 
support for advisors. So the contact with the client was through the advisor, and the advisor would then contact the office and, and, and deal with stuff. So the, the client was outside of that structure. And I think what we've all discovered is so, and so that structure was almost an advisor support mechanism rather than a client support. So you're talking about a, almost an advisor centric firm rather than a client centric firm yeah. in operation, in structure. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I agree with you. But delivering great advice yeah. and great service. So I, but with planning, it's too hard to do it that way. Mm. It actually getting the, the client that sits in the middle and there's almost a triangle around them of, of a planner, plan, plan, stroke, shadow, stroke, client support, whatever the title is, and, and then the administration function where the client knows that they're going to get contacted by different people and should contact different people about yeah. different things. And, and clients will do that. And we have yeah, an email directly to Kelly asking about stuff because they know that, that Kelly's dealing with that. I'm I'm not. And it's kind of the moment who's transferring a lot of money. So they're going to be at seven seven figures offshore and dealing with stuff. And but the emails go to Kelly because absolutely know that Kelly's on top of that dealing with it. I'm not. Mm. It's mm. not a technical issue. It's not a planning issue. We've dealt with that bit. There's other stuff to come, but this process is being dealt with by Kelly, yeah. and therefore Kelly gets the emails. And again, this speaks, again, to increasing your value of your practice because it's not all about you. It's not all hanging on you. It can't all be about me. No, no, absolutely. So we've got a little bit of time, four minutes, in fact, okay. to go to some <laughs> questions. Sorry about that. Uh, we've been having a, such a great chat. So there's a few comments that have come through, and I just want to mm. um, touch on some of them. So uh, hello, Andrew. Thanks so much for this one, Andrew. Uh, you're a regular on, on, our, on our webinar, so thank you for joining us again. And he totally agrees about compliance being a bit of a cop out you know and, and the fact that you know people don't read t's and c's and it, it really is just a, a a tick box in some places um and then kerbus i know you know kerbus well um he, always a pleasure phil uh knowledge cannot be brought off the shelf and i think that's that's very much you know what what you advocate as well um question i've got here from peter in the south african market there's a lot of talk about intergenerational wealth transfer um has there been similar talks in the uk and how have advisors uh, advised clients to transfer wealth from generation to generation there is absolutely right. It's a it's a function around the world, and particularly um, most of our clients originally first generational wealth, but then it's dealing with the next bit. Um, a couple of things: one, people have to feel safe to give. It's it's much better to give during somebody's life. I think the Glaswegian expression is to give with a warm hand rather than a cold hand. Mm. Give during your life, not in your will, uh, and and where you can influence that. Um, there is the, the old model of, of the first generation makes it and second and third generation spend it. That's because they're not educated. They get it at, at death. Yeah. It's the wrong time. Um, so, so learning to manage money and learn to deal with it. Um, it means advisors and planners have to start working with people who don't qualify in their own right to be clients yet. We have to take 5, 10, 15, 20-year viewpoints here. Uh, one advisor practice thought that they were going to get the, the next generation because they'd be the one delivering the check on death. It doesn't work mm, like that. You've mm. got to have a relationship. They've got to learn to trust you, not as daddy's advisor, but as, a, a, as somebody they can trust in their own, in their own right. Um, so guess what? Our client service model, they get exactly the same, mm. exactly the same service. 
Um, it takes time. It takes money. It takes focus. Um, but it, but it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me. My, my granny always used to say, "Clogs to clogs in three generations." <laughs> yeah. That's that. You know, the first one earns it, and the next two generations spend it. And yeah. and if you can, if you can actually educate them, as you quite rightly say, educate the whole family that you know this can be built up and built up and 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 the education around financial spending financial wealth financial well-being um then that that's a real value add i think for, for any wealthy high net worth client would you agree it is and i think we're back to the emotions and um i've known people inherit money and then not want to do anything with it mm. because it's guilt yes it's granny's money i shouldn't have it i'd, I'd rather granny was here yeah with me. yeah um and that's hard mm. to deal with that. Um, and we have to, we have to, but it isn't it easier if they're part of that process. We've already got clients who are very wealthy, children come out to 18, and we're already planning for the children to be involved in some of the conversations, yeah. some of the meetings, not all of them, but some of them. Mm. Mm. Phil, that brings us to the end. What an interesting <laughs> hour. I, I mean, I, I hope that you guys have, have got as much out of this hour as I have speaking to, I know he doesn't like me saying it, but he really is a legend in our industry, both uh, here and in the UK. Thank you very much, Phil. I think it's been insightful and very educational. Once again, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Make sure you don't miss our next episode by subscribing to this podcast series from wherever you might be listening. I'm Georgina Smith. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. Innate is a registered trademark of Stanlib Wealth Management, PTY Limited, an authorised financial services provider. Provider. Provider.